Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hi, thanks for joining me this Friday, February 17th. We did it again. We got through another week. I know if, if you're one of those people who works weekends, you're thinking, just be quiet. You don't know what you're talking about. And I, I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. And I appreciate you. Uh, you work on weekends, so the rest of us don't have to, generally speaking. But I hope you have something fun planned for this weekend. Uh, I personally, <laughs> I personally don't have anything fun planned for the weekend. Um, but just, you know, sleeping in, maybe I'm going to, I think I'm going to make some lasagna. That's going to be my thing that brings me joy this weekend. Okay, it is Friday, and you know every Friday we spend the first half of the show, now till 3.30, just you and me talking about the news of the day, the news of the week. A lot happened this week to look back on. Uh, Governor Pritzker gave us the state of the state. President Biden gave us the state of the balloons. We are coming up on the one-year anniversary of the start of the war in Ukraine, if you can believe it or not. We have a detailed health report. Remember how um, Trump never revealed anything except to have Ronnie Jackson say, Oh, my God, he's just in such great health. Well, President Biden has revealed a detailed description of all the doctors that he met with when he did his physical and what everybody found and the entire summary. We can I'm going to share some of that with you first, a real quick kind of a I know that um, a lot of people travel on weekends. I got this uh, urgent notice from a Joe Brancatelli. You know, he does the business travel newsletter Joe sent me. In New York, JFK Terminal 1 apparently experienced a fire and a power outage. So Terminal 1 is closed. Now, that's the one of the big international terminals. Apparently, there was an Air New Zealand flight that was halfway from New Zealand to JFK when they heard that there was no place for them to go after they landed. So they turned around and flew back to New Zealand. Joe says passengers spent 16 hours on the flight only to land where they started. Yeah, um, a lot of uh, flights are being rerouted, but some are just flat out canceled. Also, Joe says that virtually all international Lufthansa flights are canceled today because there is a strike going on at eight airports in Germany. So it looks like it is going to be a uh, a chaotic week in travel. You know, as he said, some carriers are going to take their international flights and just land at other airports. Some, like the New Zealand flight, just going to turn around and go home, say the heck with it. And, oh, by the way, don't go anywhere. Uh, you're not going to Germany on Lufthansa. Those flights canceled as well. So... Maybe you should stay home and make lasagna this weekend. What do you think? You know, uh, I read to you yesterday the FOP announcement that 
Lodge 7, which is basically the FOP, was uh, inviting and had apparently gotten a commitment this coming Monday, President's Day, that um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is going to come and speak to them out in Elmhurst. It is a closed presentation, apparently not even spouses of police are being admitted. It is just strictly for law enforcement. When I saw that notice that I read to you yesterday, I said, just wait. (laughs) This is going to be renewed fodder for candidates to go after Paul Vallis, you know, because he was endorsed by the FOP. Oh, my gosh. Now Ron DeSantis is coming to town. This is proof that he's Trumpian or DeSantian. Is that a word? DeSantian? Well, it didn't take too long. Uh, Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia has uh, attacked Paul Vallis, saying Paul Vallis must condemn the FOP for inviting Ron DeSantis, a dangerous and xenophobic authoritarian to our state. And um, I don't know whether um, what came out today was prompted by that or not, but Paul Vallis did come out with a statement today denouncing the appearance of Ron DeSantis. Here's what he put out. I wholeheartedly agree with Governor Pritzker that there is simply no place in Chicago for a right-wing extremist like Ron DeSantis, and I'm disappointed in FOP leadership for inviting him to speak to officers. DeSantis' record of trying to erase the LGBTQ community, banning books on black history, and much more is not in line with my values, the values of our community, or the values of the rank-and-file police officers who I believe have no interest in getting swept up in culture wars and national Republican politics. I want to build trust between all of Chicago's communities and the police by holding everyone accountable, because that's the only way we can make our city safer. This decision by the FOP leadership makes that job harder. As I said before, I don't know what John Catanzara, who else do you think he means by FOP leadership? What was Catanzara thinking? Does he, you know, I mean, his union endorsed Paul Vallis, and yet he's going to invite in a speaker that's bound to undermine the Vallis candidacy? Anyway, um, Paul Vallis out with a swift denunciation of the uh, FOP appearance this coming Monday with Ron DeSantis. Chicago politics at their finest. Along those lines, uh, Mayor Lightfoot is out with a new ad. You can always tell who she thinks (laughs) her um, most significant opponent is by who she targets in her ads. This time it's Brandon Johnson. Interestingly, uh, the ad consists of a lot of clips from WCPT, things that Brandon said when he had his own Sunday show and some of the things that he said when he was on with Santita about how, you know, uh, you know, he would cut police spending. So. There you go. Ads, ads, and more ads. What is this? Let's see. This is the 17th. We have seven, eight, nine, about another 10 days. 
about another 10 days of this. By the way, election night, we are going to be on the air. Not surprisingly, you knew that, right? We're going to be on the air from 7 to 10. It's going to be Patty, Santita, and me. I think we are going to uh, rotate hosting, and uh, we're going to each invite a bunch of special guests to talk to on election night. We're going to be watching, obviously, the mayor's race, but also the aldermanic races as well. And bring you what information uh, and vote totals we can as they come in. So uh, even if you live too far away to get a good solid radio signal at night, remember, just open up your computer. Go to WCPT820.com, click on Listen Live, and we will be there in all our glory. If you're somewhere and you want to do it on your phone, you can use the TuneIn Radio app. You can also hear us that way as well. So please join us February 28th, Tuesday, Tuesday. We will be on the air in some permutation or another from 7 p.m. till at least 10 p.m. at night. Okay, um, you know what? We have lots to talk about. I'm going to make sure the phone lines are open and uh, the text line is open. Camp Kupagani is uh, sponsoring our text line so that you can use this same phone number to text if you just don't feel like chatting today live on air. 773-763-9278. 773-763-WCPT is an easy way to remember it. Biden balloons, state of the state, George Santos, Ukraine, Joe Biden's health. We have a lot to talk about today. Let's take a break and get to it right after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Amy Goodman reports on the news stories rarely covered by the corporate media. Democracy Now! Youth activist Lucky Abang of the Pan-African Climate Justice Alliance demanded rich countries pay poor nations for loss and damage caused by climate disasters like recent floods in Nigeria that killed more than 600 people while displacing over a million. Democracy Now! Weekday evenings at 11 on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Friday, and on every Friday for at least the first half of the show, you and I, we talk about the news of the day and the news of the week that we found interesting or Worth mentioning. So let's get right to it. Let's go to the phone lines. Roosevelt is calling in. Hello, Roosevelt. How are you? Joan, before I go on with my rant, my explanation, or whatever you want to call it, have a nice weekend to you and your family. Oh, thank you. Good luck you too. On lasagna. Good luck <laughs> on your lasagna, but I'm making ribs. I haven't made ribs in oh, Wow. That sounds interesting, too. Yeah, I like ribs. I'm trying to eat less meat, but sometimes ribs just call to you. We haven't had them, I don't know, maybe six months or more. Mm. Here's Here's a simple recipe, Joan. Just throw a whole onion, cut it up, throw it in a pressure cooker, cut your ribs down, you know, 
so that they're when they come out, you don't have to deal with spreading them apart or anything. And just add a maybe, uh, I don't know, two cups of water, and then spice it up the way you want it, about 40 minutes, and then you could finish them off in the oven if you want to, mm-hmm. you know, like, roast them or whatever you want to call it. So it's, Who needs Shelly Young from the chopping block? We have Roosevelt on ribs. <laughs> I'm a good cook. I'm, yeah, I'm pinning myself on the back. Back to, back to the politics. I have two rules, Joan, when it comes down to my vote. One, you're not, if you're supported by the paternal order of police, how can you reform police, especially what's going on around the country killing African Americans and Latinos and um, racial profiling? So and I'm, I'm expanding on why. And the second rule is you must not have voted for Trump, and that's Willie Wilson. So those two candidates, Paul Ballard, Willie Wilson will not get my vote. Now, let me explain why Willie Wilson. To me, this is just me, Roosevelt. He did the same thing that Trump. He's a Trump. He's the African-American version of Trump. I know I'm opening up a can of worms. He's the African-American version of Trump because he's given money away, and I, I don't agree with that. So did Trump when he first started. He was given he kind he got uh, actors and actresses to uh, for fifty dollars a head to show up at his rallies at the beginning when nobody was showing up. And then and let me explain on Willie Wilson. When you asked him the question last time you had him on, you asked him a specific question as far as what kind of cuts is he going to do because he wants to cut taxes, but you have to spend some money. So how, you know he says he's going to budget. And then he sounds, and like I said, I'm going to repeat it. He sounds just like Trump. You cannot run the city of Chicago like a business. And he keeps on constantly giving himself as an example, saying that he would do this and he would do that. But he doesn't go into specifics. Everything that he answers is a talking point, in my opinion. So that's the reason why I would not vote for Willie Wilson, in my opinion. He's a great guy. He does great stuff for the community, all, for everybody, brown, black, but he doesn't belong in politics. He's the overwise of the uh, of, of Chicago, in my opinion, because overwise ran for everything and never won. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's just my opinion. I don't know what you think, but I, said, I was very disappointed, and he would not answer anything specific. Back to, you know, back to more police and all that. So... Yeah, I I understand what you're saying. I um, as you know, I've been interviewing a lot of the candidates and um, you can I think sometimes when you get a non-answer, sometimes when you get a non-answer as as the interviewer, you need to follow up and say, you know what, you really didn't answer the question. Let's try this again. But sometimes I leave it alone because I think the non-answer is all the answer the audience needs. You know, I mean, it's pretty obvious to you when I ask a question and a candidate ducks the question. And I think that is the answer. You know, they're not ready to give specifics. They either don't have them or the specifics are too unpleasant to share. And so sometimes, you know, when I think somebody has an answer, sometimes I follow up and sometimes I don't, because sometimes I think the very act of ducking a question is all the answer the audience needs. Well, I agree with you, Joan, and and like I said before, and I was more disappointed when I was at the forum 
with you guys over there. And when he said the stuff about the rabbits, they asked him the question, and he ducked the the the, the answer when he when he said that he was going to you know take the handcuffs off the police. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and when I had him on this week, I said, you know, what does that mean? You're saying this. What does it mean? What does that look like when it comes to policy? And again, I don't really think that there was it wasn't like, well, the foot policy, the foot pursuit policy right now is this and I want it changed to that. Um, and, you know, a lot of times candidates, particularly if they're not in the lead, they are trying so hard not to alienate any potential voters that they don't want to give specifics. They want to be as generic as possible because they don't want to alienate because they need every, every vote to come their way. So, you know, it's a, it's a real interesting dynamic interviewer and candidate. And sometimes I feel like I've done a good job and other times uh, I'm not so happy with myself, but you know, sometimes you can, you can only push so much. And back to the rabbit, rabbit comment, it reminded me, I flashed back to when Trump said, when you arrest them, don't go easy on them. Like hit them on the head or something. He, something to that effect. I'm not, I don't remember the exact words, but what he says, when you arrest them, he was referring to the police department. And remember, he said he was going to fix the problem here in Chicago in a week. He never did nothing. Trump, referring back to Trump. But, um, yeah, I flashed back to Trump. And to me, it, those are the same words, except, you know, to, in other words, be rough on them. Don't go easy on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you, Roosevelt. And and as far as your first argument as to you don't want to vote for anybody that the FOP supports because you don't think that they could change the police department, um, that's a le- absolute legitimate take on this. I would offer that some people would say that um, maybe the opposite is true, that, you know, because I've talked to candidates and, you know, everybody wants to get rid of David Brown, but most of them want to promote from within. And I've said to them, can you change the culture if you have grown up in the culture? And to a person, they said the only people that the rank and file will listen to is someone they respect. And if you bring in somebody from some other part of the country, they are not going to have that instant sense of security and respect as they would have from somebody who you carefully pick who has come up through the ranks. And I, I would say the same thing might be true for a mayoral candidate that somebody who already has the respect of the rank and file might be more amenable to listening to some policy or procedural or training changes from that person than they would from somebody who they view as a mayor who is um, in opposition to them. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I agree with you because if you, if I remember correctly, all the guys that they brought in from uh, Philadelphia or wherever to, to to head the police department, they bas- basically didn't, you know, didn't take to them to them because we mm-hmm. had quite, we had quite a few. We had quite a few, but in the past twenty, thirty years, but uh, the culture. You made a great point. I mean, all the urban cities such as New York. Remember what they did to the mayor in New York at that uh, wake at that uh, funeral. Of the mm-hmm. two offices, one was Asian, one was Latino. They turned us back on 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 the, on the mayor of New York, and, that and was- uh, there was at least one instance where Chicago police did the same thing to Lori Lightfoot. 
when she showed up at a hospital after an officer was shot. I don't know that it happened every time, but I know it happened at least once. So, yeah. Um, Go ahead, Roosevelt. Thank you. Something has to be done as far as reforming the police departments in urban cities, period. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, at at the very least, and I mean rock bottom, the very least is putting the consent decree fully into effect. I mean, why on earth... Um, Mayor Lightfoot fired the person whose job it was to make sure that consent decree happens. I, um, I'm sure she had her reasons, but right now it doesn't seem like it was the best decision. And, uh, so we're falling behind. We have this dis- consent decree. There are certain kinds of trainings that need to be changed and put in place. And we're, we're, we're behind. We're behind schedule on this. David Brown doesn't seem to be picking up the slack either. Anyway. Uh, thank you for the call, Roosevelt. We are going to be taking a break. We are going to be talking about the news of the day for the next hour, you and me. I'm going to share with you uh, some of the things that you've heard from earlier the week and a couple of things you haven't heard from earlier in the week about various news stories. We're going to get back to the phone lines and much more when we come right back after this. Take Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Friday. Every Friday we talk about the news of the day. Thank you so much for filling up the phone lines with your thoughts and comments. Let's go back to the phone lines now. Jim is calling in from Chicago. Hello, Jim. How are you today? Hi, Joan. It's an honor to follow President Roosevelt. That's all right. <laughs> What I was going to say is what's in my mind is how in the second grade, I understood the separation of in civics class, the separation, the vital separation of church and state. And that was that was the 50s. And that never really came. And then you, I mean, that was really the law of the land for it told the moral majority with Reagan and, and then the. Uh, the ministers got involved in politics. And what's aggravating is when I listen to Republican radio night, they're invoking the almighty in every other sentence. And it's dangerous. It's, it's very, very dangerous. A vital democracy cannot, uh, it has to have separation of church and state. That's all I have to say. There's no way a democracy can survive. Uh, Spain is a great example of it. When the Catholic Church got behind the corporations there in Franco, it was destruction, absolute destruction. And uh, it's uh, and then you've got Trump's son selling Bibles for seventy bucks a piece, and they're co-opting religion. Uh, yeah, that's one of court. along with all of the homophobia and the racism. One of the, I think, core problems of what's going on today is that we have a number of people who not only don't believe in the separation of church and state, but actually think it's wrong, who think that, I mean, how many people have you read about and heard about who say that, you know, we were founded as a white Christian nation and that's that's who we should be? I mean, um, 
Mike Flynn came out and said, you know, I really think we should all have one religion in this country. I mean, just things that are just antithetical to the principles on which we were founded. And and that attitude really disturbs me as much as the homophobia and the racism. I agree wholeheartedly. And you got the Supreme Court that's pushing their religion into the into the uh, judicial uh, decisions. And it's and it's not fair. It's not fair. It's not fair. If I go to a physician, for instance, and say the physician is agnostic or atheist or an Arab or whoever, and he's taking my glove letter out, I'm not going to be trying to convince him of my religious beliefs while he's operating. I mean, this is vital to a democracy to to play fair. Everybody has their lane, Joan, and they should stay in it. And you have a great weekend. Thanks, Joan, for taking my call. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for for calling in. Uh, Let's go back to the phone lines. Scott is calling in from Streamwood. Hey, Scott, thanks for joining the conversation today. Go ahead with your thought. Hi, Joan. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Um, I just wanted your thought about this. Um, I'm I'm a total liberal, 100% Democrat. What really gets me, you know, we all hate we all dislike, you know, the disgraced president is what he is. He is what he is. But what really gets me is the former vice president, the so-called Christian, follow democracy. He will not even um, testify when he was subpoenaed. You know that the Orange Turds group is, is, is telling him what to do. Think about that. Here's a guy mm-hmm. on January 6th, and you really started thinking about it, on January 6th, the Trump thugs were out to kill him. They had a guillotine out there, and he still has the audacity to stick up for Trump. I know. I know. As much as I think Nikki Haley's candidacy is going nowhere, I don't, you know, I don't understand how Mike Pence thinks that what he is doing is somehow going to position himself to be the presidential candidate in 2024. Um, his constituency seems to only be the really far right, radical, white Christian folks. And they're not enough to get him a reelected governor of Indiana. Right. Well, not only that, well, you're right, Joan, but not only that, but what, the 20%, 29% of the maggot crowd they're going to stick with Trump. You know that. I mean, he, he, you know, really, when you think about it, uh, right now, Mike Pence is a perfect punchline for SNL, the stupidity and ignorance that he is. I mean, it's just it's it's sad. It really is sad that this guy has no uh, moxie or no, you know, to, to still stick up for Trump after everything that Trump mm-hmm. through. Yep. Yeah, uh, it's um, it's really amazing. And frankly, the the last survey slash poll I saw showed that when they looked at people who identify as a Republican voter, 42 percent of them said that they want Trump. I think it's higher than the 20 percent you just you just quoted. I mean, but admittedly, the people who will identify to a pollster as Republican, they're the pretty hard right. They're the pretty far right. They are definitely the MAGA crowd, but they're still all in for Trump. Yeah, yeah well, I, those are, you know, people I hate to say with IQs less than six. And it's just, it, it's just you don't realize the the mentality of people in the United States to, to, to all we can hope and pray. And I'm a person of faith that Jack Smith gets him every day. I do. I do. I pray every night that Jack Smith gets him. 
Well, I think your prayers are coming close to being answered. Uh, I was reading this morning that Donald Trump has been using, I can't remember if he's back on Twitter or if he's still using Truth Social, but he is going after Jack Smith with everything he's got. So I don't know. Lots of times, you know, if you are the subject of an investigation, you and your lawyers get a heads up before stuff is made public. So he clearly feels that Jack Smith is coming for him. <laughs> well, that's the good thing. And, and the latest, the latest issue. And this is all pretty, pretty truthful. That um, these these lawyers now are getting smart, and they will charge Trump up front because you know he's a scumbag. You know he doesn't pay people. So like the 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 newer uh, lawyers are taking his case are demanding payment up front because he's not going to pay anybody. That's who he is. Well, it's about time they got smart and got wise to that. I've I also heard a report today because you know. Uh, the one one of his lawyers was fined over a hundred thousand dollars because the judge said the lawsuit was so frivolous and it was clearly designed to use the legal system for revenge. So not only did the did the judge dismiss the lawsuit, but the judge fined Donald Trump and fined the lawyer who brought the case to court. Another case was dropped right after that. And uh, there was a report on CNN yesterday that uh, some of his most uh, trusted lawyers are now uh, telling him that they don't want to file some of these lawsuits that he wants them to file. It's about time, you know, for smart people. You'd think you'd have to be a smart person to be a lawyer. Taking a lot of these lawyers a long time to wake up. But don't you think, gentlemen, that these, these lawyers would have some decency, too, and not want to lose their bar license? because of You'd it? think, wouldn't you? I mean, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? you think of, I mean, I mean, what does he do? Just hire? Uh, I think he just hires a Trump lawyer or a lawyers on TV, and the only decision he can make whether he's going to have a Big Mac tonight or a bucket of KFC chicken. I mean, he's just pathetic, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank, thank you, John. Thank you. Great weekend. I'll, you I'll, too, I'll Scott. Uh, th- thanks. Thanks so much for for calling in. Um, we, um, one of the stories that I wanted to, to talk to you about today was, um, was Ukraine. Next week, next week, Friday, is the one year anniversary of the beginning of the war in Ukraine. And, uh, before we go to a break today, I want to play you Bill Crystal, the former Republican, now conservative, never Trumper. He uh, he does a podcast and it's called Conversations with Bill Crystal. And he talked to a woman by the name of Anne Applebaum. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning writer, historian, and she has a real area of expertise on Ukraine. She's been there three times since the war started. And she talked to him about how um, luckily she was not one of these people. But she talked to him about how a lot of people were surprised that Ukraine didn't just fold. There were a lot of predictions that agreed with Putin's thought that within a week or two, he would pretty much have the country in his control. She was not one of those people, and she said she's really glad to have been vindicated. But I wanted to share with you her observations. Now, this is a conversation marking the one-year anniversary of the start of the war, and it is kind of a look-back 
and an assessment of the Ukrainian people. This is Anne Applebaum in conversation with Bill Crystal. Listen to this. The assumption was that, okay, there would be a guerrilla war and the fighting would go on for a long time, maybe even many years. But, you know, the, the Ukrainian state was very unlikely to survive. Um, I, I did think that this was a, um, this was a wrong assumption at the time, and I, I'm fortunate enough to have said so publicly in a couple of yeah, places. That's good. <laughs> um, but, 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 you know, but of course, we all had doubts. Nobody really knew, um, because we didn't quite know what the scale of the attack would be. Um, but I think what has happened is that the Ukrainians have shown, first of all, that, um, their army and their military were far better prepared kind of psychologically and in terms of, you know, planning and so on uh, than anybody had guessed. I mean, the, the country didn't do something, so they didn't produce lots of ammunition in advance. They didn't reinforce their cities in advance. There were things in retrospect that could have been done. And if you go around Ukraine, you hear people say that. Um, and people, you know, it would have been nice to have a wider, broader social preparation, but the army was prepared. Um, and the army has also shown itself to be very creative. It uses what equipment it has, um, whether it's, you know, drones you can buy on the Internet and kind of they call it MacGyvering, you know, fix, fixing up, fixing them up to be able to do other things they weren't supposed to be able to do. Um, they're they're extremely creative. They use their weapons well. Um, there is no hint, by the way, of any corruption to do with the army um, that, you know, all that is 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 very straightforward. And the other thing that has been. Again, not surprising if you knew Ukraine, but really, you know, by comparison to other societies and other times and places, Ukrainian society, the way in which um, spontaneous volunteer groups have organized themselves, whether to help the army or to help refugees or to run cities in the absence of, you know, I've got a story coming out today about um, cities and towns under occupation, um, people really rising to the challenge. in extraordinary ways, um, it makes it, it, you know, it's always been a kind of grassroots society. It's better ground up. You know, the state was always much weaker than the society, and it was always a place where people were suspicious of power, um, but able to organize on the ground. And that all of that has played out just unbelievably well. So there you have Anne Applebaum's take on uh, what is going on in Ukraine. We are going to take a break. We are going to continue to take your calls and talk about the news of the day, the news of the week, right after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. This is WCPT 820 where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. Hello, it is Friday, and every Friday we take your calls, talk about the news of the day, the news of the week, 773-763-9278. Let's go back to the lines right now. Bobby's calling in from Indiana. Hello, Bobby. How are you? Hello, Joan. Well, have a have a great weekend, Bobby. Well, um, I am, and you and you can be part of it. <laughs> I'm thinking that um, you know I got the 1933 Pontiac. It's all gassed up. I'm ready to go. I'm going to pick up Jim 
And if you want to get dolled up and get raised, and we're all over to President Roosevelt's for ribs tonight. Oh, I should have pinned him down about that. You make a great point. Uh, yeah, and I'll, if I get that lasagna made, I'll bring it over, and we can have lasagna and ribs. Yeah, boy, we'll have a heck of a Donnie Brook there. But, um, yeah, you were just talking about the Ukraine, and, um, and I, I suppose you've heard that there was on the news earlier this week that they say uh, the support is supposedly softening in this country. Uh, it's not a heck of a lot, but they said it's down from what it was. But um, my concern is, are we giving them what they need in time? Yeah, well, that's especially since, by all accounts, uh, Russia is making a big push right now. That is definitely that is definitely a concern. When I have heard um, military officials from this country talk about it, though, and be asked that exact question, they've said, you know, oh, not like not a big deal. Uh, not a big deal. Um, once we decide to give them something, we can get it to them really, really fast. So I guess we'll see. I mean, Ukraine still wants somebody to share planes with them. And so far, nobody has agreed to do that. They, that seems to be something that Ukraine feels is a vital part of winning the war. And so far, thought- nobody from Europe or the United States has agreed to it. I thought I heard something about the British were going to do something about that. Well, the British agreed to send over some tanks, um, but I have not. If if they've agreed to send over uh, planes, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, well, you know, there's always talk, 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 as you know. But but whatever it is that can be sent, I think they really... uh, the Russians are, are definitely getting a hot to do something to them, and I think they need to get everything they can over there now in their hands so they can fend uh, them off as best they can. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, if we are committed to supporting them, we have to continue that support, and we have to make sure, you know, we don't want to just give them enough to hold um, Russia in a stalemate, wouldn't it make sense to give them enough equipment and enough training so they could just drive Russia out and be done with this? Well, you would think, well, it <laughs> depends on who you are. Certain people, even on your station, uh, say, say, oh, you know, we need to negotiate. Well, to, in my opinion, if you got people that want you wiped off the map, how do you negotiate? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And how do you how do you justify losing all the lives and fighting and then at, at some point saying, okay, well, we'll give you part of our country if you just stop killing us. You know, because there's this argument that, you know, uh, Putin um, now only wants that strip of land to the east so that Russia has a land bridge to Crimea. 
But that's not what Zelensky has said. Zelensky has said not only do we want you out of out of Ukraine, but Zelensky has said we want you out of Crimea as well. So he's really going toe to toe with Putin here. Now, well, that that's going to be that will be uh, the tricky part. Will be the Crimea. Yeah, definitely. That will definitely. Be you know, but mm-hmm. I mean. Uh, as far as getting everything else back in uh, Ukrainian hands, I think that should be a that should be a non-negotiable, excuse <laughs> me, for sure. And um, and uh, and I I still think, and and I've heard that um, um, Crimea is kind of. Um, a card up. Uh, going up now. This is a problem with getting old. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I hear you. Card up the Ukrainian sleeve uh, in negotiating. Uh, it, it, when it finally gets to that point, yeah, that's something I think they'll use. Uh, I hope so. Getting, I hope so. I I would love to see this come to an end. I can't imagine um, what those people are are living with on a daily basis and how they must wonder, you know, if whether or not the rest of the world is really going to help them survive. Bobby, thank you so much for the call. Have a great weekend. If you get in touch with uh, President Roosevelt, have some ribs for me, okay? Will do. We'll have a nice fireside chat. (laughs) Okay, thanks. Um, we went to Indiana with that call. Now let's go to Michigan. Ron is calling in from Michigan. Hey, Ron, thanks for calling in today and joining the conversation. Thank you, Joan. Joan, this is reporting from the New York Times over the summer. It stated our special forces said that every special forces of NATO has got their people in there. Okay, that's the commandos. And we already know... The CIA has their commandos in there because we have uh, uh, Malcolm Nance openly recruiting for the CIA war in Ukraine. Now, I'm, I'm not saying the Russians are right for invading their neighbor and destroying it like that. But the fact of the matter is, this thing goes all the way back to World War II. I'm not going to give you the history lesson, but I'm a Vietnam veteran. And I see this escalation. You know, we're calling for hit, bring them, give them airplanes, give them everything they want. All these warmongers say this. But they have no children in the war. They weren't in a war themselves. But they're everybody's saying war, war. I say negotiate, negotiate, negotiate. Plain and simple. It, yes, not everybody's going to get what they want. But are we going to keep escalating until we get atomic bombs flying? Is that what we really want? Well, I think the problem so far, Ron, is that Putin doesn't want to negotiate. Zelensky has said a few times that that he would sit down and begin talks, and there has been no acceptance of that offer on Russia's side. We have we we control the whole thing, in my opinion, and the Russians. And there's got to be a way. If we could have brought the Vietnam, you know, the Vietnam War was a thousand times worse to the Vietnamese people than what the Russians are doing, and still we neg- we were able to negotiate a peace treaty. Okay. So, so don't tell me it's not possible. It is possible, and it has to be done. It, you know, here's another thing, Joan. This is Africa. This is Black History Month. We owe more to Haiti than we do to Ukraine. If it wasn't for Haiti and the Haitian Revolution, 
And, and Haitians fought with us in our revolution. Haitians, 150 of them fought with us in our American revolution. Then they were sent sent back packing because they didn't like the fact of, of free black people fighting fighting against white people. But the thing of it is, we owe Haiti for that for the Louisiana Purchase, and we never paid them back. And what's so what's so hard about going a, a few feet off our a few miles off our shore and bringing democracy to our own hemisphere? No, we got to spread democracy all over the world with our weapons. I say I say help Haiti. Not another penny for Ukraine until we hate hate to help Haiti. Why can't we do both? Why can't we do both, Ron? I agree with you. Haiti's gotten a bad deal, especially uh, from uh, not only the United States, but also the French. Uh, I mean, we really we pulled out of Haiti in a way that really crippled them going forward because people are like, well, you know, the Dominican Republic is is down there and it's doing really well. Why is Haiti doing so poorly? Because we saddled Haiti with all of this debt. And uh, Haiti hasn't been able to crawl out from under that. I agree with you that we could and should uh, do a lot more to help Haiti. But I don't think that means that we can't uh, do both. I mean, you know, we can chew gum and walk. Um, like, let's uh, let's do both at the same time. Thank you for letting me get my opinion across. Uh, Thank you for calling, Ron. I really uh, appreciate you joining the conversation today. Um, and um, I hope you will again in the future. We are going to be uh, taking calls uh, till 3.30 today, and then we're going to, you know, start a kind of a regular show with uh, guests at 3.30 and uh, forward from there. Um, but we still have another half an hour while we are, um, let's see, do we have time? Yeah, I think we have time, um, Lady B, to get another call on the books. Let's go to Elaine, who is calling in from Chicago. Hi, Elaine. Thanks for calling in today. Well, hello, Joan. <laughs> I adore your show. Thank you. Okay, so I want to do this as fast as I can. I got two points. All right, first, let's go to Ukraine, because this is really important. Do you remember, now, I call it the invasion occupation of Iraq. Remember 43rd President George W. Bush? All right, Dan Rather was invited to Baghdad to interview Saddam Hussein. And Saddam Hussein said words that have given me chills up and down my spine, to this day, he said, you can occupy my lands, but you can never occupy my people. My people will rise up. My people will resist. Now, you can take this, not to, not to Saddam Hussein, take it to the people will rise up. The people will resist. We will not be occupied. Can't you take that to every single war? World War II, right? Uh, the French Resistance, what did they do? They raised, rose up against the Nazis. Every, every invasion, occupation, it doesn't matter what country, what, what era, it's still the same. You can occupy the lands, but you cannot occupy the people. Isn't this true? I definitely think, at least in the short term, it's true. But I also think that if you live in a country that has an occupying force, I think if if for the short term, 
you could, the people will definitely resist in whatever ways they can. But the longer it goes on, we've also seen that people just sort of eventually kind of make their peace with it. And as much as there was resistance in France, I don't know that it would have survived without the help they got from the United States and the United Kingdom. That's what I'm talking. That's what mm-hmm. I'm talking about, Joan. That's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, everybody when Hitler invaded Poland, the world ignored him. Oh, he'll just stop at Poland. Did he? Nope. And that's what I think. That's what I think is keeping Western Europe and the United States organized against Putin, because nobody believes that if Putin gets what he wants in Ukraine, nobody believes he's going to stop there. And nobody. The the president of Moldova is already going public with the fact that she thinks that Russian operatives have invaded the country and that they're going to start creating some kind of turmoil and chaos so that Putin has an excuse to invade, you know, for their own good, just like supposedly he did with Ukraine. Um, Anyway, Elaine, we are late to take a break. I really appreciate your calling in. We are going to take a break, folks, for news, and we are going to be back with more calls and more news of the week right after this. Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. Text away, 773-763-9278. Remember when you get to work to hop over to WCPT820.com or the TuneIn Radio app and stream The Stephanie Miller Show weekdays 8 to 11 a.m. on Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you, CPT 820. It is Friday. We spend the first half of the show talking with you about the news of the day, the news of the week. Let us go to the phone lines. Uh, Ron is calling from Chicago. Hello, Ron. Thanks for calling in today. Uh, yesterday, the uh, grand jury in Georgia recommended uh, indictments for uh, one or more people for perjury. And now they have to form another grand jury to see if these indictments uh, will be um, given. You know, how long is will this take? <laughs> yeah, it feels like forever, doesn't it? I know how frustrating it is. But remember, even here, remember it was uh, the FBI raided Ed Burke's City Hall office. They covered the windows up with paper. They took out computers and files. And everybody was like, oh, my God, Ed Burke's going to face charges. And month after month after month after month with by it was like a year later by the time everybody had pretty much said well that's never going to happen all of a sudden boom one day there the charges are uh, the judicial system and and even uh, federal law enforcement they move very slowly ron very very and also uh you mentioned raquel welch the other day uh Back in 1960, when they were filming the TV show Gilgan's Island, she auditioned for the part of Ginger, and she didn't get the part, so she started her movie career. Wow, I didn't know that. 
Um, I did read, though, that she was born in Chicago, and uh, her real name was Gail Tejeda. And, uh, you know, uh, back in the studio, Bedalia's last name is Tejeda. Maybe, Ron, Bedalia is related to Raquel Welch. Bedalia, are you related to her? No. You're sure? Yes. All right. Well, she says no. But um, I I thought that that was really, really interesting. A lot of things about her. I really admired a lot of things about her, I, I have to say. Um, she, I thought she, you know, she was, you know, she, she was one of the strong ones. She was the one who would, you know, and there are a few of them, a few particularly women who um, either work really hard to break through a system that's seemingly set against them or, you know, like Reese Witherspoon, she was like, as she got older, she saw the parts drying up and she created her own production company. I mean, she's the one, the big little lies that had her and Nicole hit Kidman. And I think um, Laura Dern was in that and it was a huge hit. But she was like, you know what? Nobody is going to be writing for us. Nobody's going to be offering us parts. We're just going to do it ourselves. And uh, people like that are really worth their weight in gold. Thanks for the call, Ron. I, I appreciate it. Um, let's go back to the phone lines. Brian is calling in from Kankakee. Hey, Brian, how are you today? Great. Um, I want to talk about the family farm, the family farm that has disappeared. Um, you know, it's been in the news that the Chinese are buying up uh, American farmland. Uh, well, it's true. I, I have a friend who probably sold his farm to a, to the Chinese government. It, it was through a shell company in uh, out of Singapore. But the Chinese have to stand in line. It, it's insane, the outside money that's pouring in uh, from everywhere. Just the prices are skyrocketing. No family farmer can afford to buy farmland. So there's a study out that I read that I think you'd find the results fascinating. I mean, it tells the whole tale. It's of 17 counties just 17 central Illinois counties in what's known as the Golden Triangle between Champaign-Urbana, Springfield, and Peoria. It's some of the richest farmland in the world. Well, the top four landowning entities in those 17 counties own over 90,000 acres of land. We're talking a billion and a half dollars at today's inflated prices. And who those top four entities are, it's fascinating. The number one landowner is the Church of Latter-day Saints, clocking in at over 34,000 acres. We're talking half a billion dollars of farmland just in those 17 counties. Um, then the land trust. The What's the name of the report or the book? So can... I don't know. I found it, oh. I found it in a, a publication called The Prairie Farmer. And they okay. cited it a, a few months, or maybe five months ago, six months ago. It's in the Prairie Farmer of those okay. seventeen counties. That's a, that's so amazing. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna look that up. And you know, the silver lining, if if we can reach for something here, I was reading about some of the congressional committees being formed, and the Agriculture Committee is being held up as probably the the one committee where there will be the most bipartisan support because of two congresspeople, Mary Miller, the Republican from downstate, 
Oh, shoot. And there's a Democrat uh, from uh, central or northern Illinois, and they they all agree that they want to undertake legislation to try to protect family farms. So uh, this information that you're sharing is is surprising, but it's not shocking because um, apparently this is such an important issue that and, you know, Mary Miller, she's a pretty hard right Republican. And yet this committee was being held up. I think with the article was in the Washington Post and it was like, you know, you want to see bipartisan legislation coming out of this Congress. Watch the Agriculture Committee, because all of these people are, whether they're Dems or whether they're Republicans, they're all worried about family farms and they want to make sure family farms are taken care of. Now, based on what you just said, Brian, I'm, you know, let's hope it's not too little too late. Um, but, but let's keep an eye on this, uh, the Agriculture Committee and what they produce. Um, and whether or not they do produce it working together, which is what everybody is saying, seems likely to happen. Shared interests here. Thanks for putting that out. I'm going to look up the prairie farmer and see if I can uh, dig this information up. That's fascinating. Thank you for sharing it yeah, with I me, Brian. I appreciate it. it. Uh-huh. Bye. Okay. We are going to take a break. We have a little bit more time. You know, uh, I'm hoping to share with you when we come back, you know, one of the people... I share with you from time to time is a woman who records videos that she posts to social media. She calls herself politics girl and she talks about controversies of the day and breaks them down into very understandable messages. She, um, a, a while, a while back, a few days ago, she recorded one about George Santos. Uh, I want to share it with you when we come right back after this. Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa! You feel that right away. Uh, it's just refreshing. The Devil's Advocates. For those who would, will flip around and find something, hell, what to be challenged, hear a different idea other than what right-wing uh, talk radio is giving you, there's a huge opportunity for the Devil's Advocates, for progressive talk, whatever, the truth, uh, because everyone, most people want the truth. And sometimes the truth hurts, but then you get over it. Then it's just normal. The Devil's Advocates, weeknights at 7 on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Um, I looked up the Prairie Farmer, and I found the editorial that Brian was talking about. It's from May 17th of last year there's a number of charts uh, the person wanted to the reporter wanted to look into who was buying farmland um here's part of it there he's right the church of jesus christ of latter day saints is uh, owns 38,000 acres of farmland in iowa illinois indiana and missouri but they also do say um these top 10 farm owners only represent 0.2% of total farmland for all the counties surveyed. That means the majority of farmland 
is owned by farmers and will continue to be for generations to come. But among the absentee landlords, uh, the Mormons, um, there's a group called the Scully family, and it goes through over and over. Interestingly, number four on the list is Bill Gates. He is, uh, by all accounts, the largest individual farmland owner in the United States. It also appears he is the largest individual owner of prime central Illinois farmland. Bill Gates. Who knew? Who knew he cared about anything like that? Anyway, um, <clears throat> let's go back to the phone lines. Dave is calling in from Hoffman Estates. Hey, Joe. Sorry, Dave. <clears throat> Ooh, no, got a little woozy there. <laughs> yes, yes, I got emotional talking to you. Oh God, I'm not. You're talking about Ukraine and that earlier, and mm-hmm. earlier in the week they were talking about that they've been getting low on ammunition and going through it almost faster than NATO can replenish them right further now. And and then also Tony Blinken had a that about that if the Ukraine had given up a portion of the East, you know, for a peace deal. He said that would open up Pandora's box. Well, if you look back in history, that happened before. Finland, you know, you guys talk about Germany and all that from World War II. Well, they were attacked by Russia back in 1939, otherwise known as the Winter War. And again, in '45, they had a continuation where where Germany kind of joined up with them because they had a mutual enemy, Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Finland, you know, they had a sue for peace at the end, basically, because they ran out of munitions. And like Ukraine, they were kicking Russia's ass. And uh, But one big difference, they, the Finns, couldn't get any help from France, Britain, and America even. And forget the League of Nations, you know, they all kind of tucked their tail in their, between their respective legs there because they were afraid they didn't want to get mixed up going against the communists. Yeah, and then when it came, you know, America and that sprinkled a few people. By the time it was too late, though, you know, send some arms and that. that send. I hope that they're learning from. I hope the people in charge, when they are making decisions about Ukraine, remember these lessons, uh, because you know, I mean, that was that was part of the that was part of the problem before. Is you you know you just can't sometimes you just can't satisfy. Uh, somebody like a Putin or um, a Hitler by, you know, oh, we'll just we'll just give them a little bit of uh, we'll give them a little bit and then they'll go away. And that never works. Yeah. And the Finns, you know, Finns went head to head with Russia. And as you know, they Russia has not messed with them in 88 years or so. And that's why they're so paranoid about them joining NATO also, you know, hmm. and. And then, like, you know, when the Wagner group is doing now, you know, with these mass troops, that's part of Russia's M.O. Again, they did that in that winter war. And that Gustav Mannerheim, the head of the Finnish troops, and that, and later, like, the first president or leader, he had to periodically change the machine gunners because these Russians were coming en masse, but they were cutting them down like uh, wood. And he had to change the guys because of the fact that even though they were an enemy, it was messing with their heads that they're still a human, you know, that they were killing. So, so. 
Well, they thank don't, you. Nobody talks about that. Yeah. About Russia and Finland war. They always talk about Germany. And, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, right. Thanks, Dave. You well. too. You too. Um, let's uh, let's uh, grab another phone call. Robert is calling in from Chicago. Hi, Joan. Uh, Hi. The organization that's similar to NATO, I think it's the acronym definition, I think it's Southeast at 93 organization. And I'd like to know if they still exist and uh, if they do, are they involved in any way with Ukraine? And uh, or would they be involved with uh, China and uh, Taiwan? Ask the beginning of your question again. There was a little bit of static, and I didn't hear the beginning of your question. Yeah, there's an organization, I think, that still exists. And I think it's called CETO, South Atlantic Treaty Organization, Southeast Atlantic Treaty Organization, similar to NATO, but with different countries. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to know, are they involved in Ukraine at all? And or possibly, would they be involved in China and Taiwan if something happened? You know, I know the organization you're talking about, and I, I now that you mention it, I haven't read anything about it for a, a really long time. You're right, it's the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization. Um, I think it kind of focuses on a different part of the world, though. With um, I think it focuses on the area of the world where um, Australia is and uh, New Zealand. I'm not sure that they have anything to do with uh, Eastern Europe and Ukraine. So I don't, I, if they are playing a role, I, do, I don't, I haven't read anything about it, about CETO. Thanks, uh, thanks for the uh, question, though. Um, refreshed my memory when it comes, when it comes to that. I think that was designed, to, uh, let's see, now that I look it up, uh, it's an organization of protection that is comprised of Australia, France, New Zealand, Pakistan, the Philippines, Thailand, Thailand, uh, the United Kingdom, and the United States. So Ukraine would not be as uh, affected by anything that they would do. NATO would be the organization that was much closer to home for Ukraine. Um, before we um, before we wrap up, I do want to share with you the thing that I talked to you about earlier: uh, politics, girl. Uh, talked about George Santos. You know, yeah, okay, he's a Republican congressman from New York who literally lied about everything, his name, his heritage, his work history, his ethnicity, where his mother died, how his mother died. I mean, the guy's a total fabrication, and he's easy to make fun of. But she says, you know, we really ought to pay attention to him, and we should consider him as representative of a lot of things that are going on now in the Republican Party. Listen to what Politics Girl has to say. It's easy to make fun of George Santos. The man is ridiculous. He's lied about everything from his resume to how his mom died. Twice. He said he was Jewish, and then when he was caught, he said he meant Jew-ish. He's gay. He's straight. He's an American businessman. He's a Brazilian drag queen. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. But George Santos isn't funny. The Republicans allowing him to sit as one of the 435 people in the entire country who get to make our laws and set our country's budget and declare war isn't funny. It's sickening and entirely indicative of what the Republican Party has become. 
The party of family values and law and order has become the party of liars and frauds, criminals and lowlives, the proudly uneducated and the loudly ignorant. The Republicans teach our children that lying is okay as long as it benefits you. The bigotry is fine and violence is the appropriate answer to not getting what you want. They teach us that consequences are only for those who get caught or don't have the connections to get out of it and that decency and honesty are characteristics without value, that you can say anything, do anything, be anything and get away with it if you have enough power to protect you. What George, if that's even his name, did isn't resume embellishment. It's fraud. His win helped the GOP take back the House, and that isn't right. For those few Republicans who came out against him, they're not angry that he's a liar. They're angry that he got caught, that his seat might be in jeopardy. The problem isn't that George is some aberration within the GOP. It's that he's too obviously a reflection of exactly what it is they are now. When is our country going to be done rewarding liars and idolizing con men? George Santos should be in jail, not in Congress. And a fair amount of his fellow lawmakers should be there with him. The Republicans allowing George Santos to be a sitting congressman makes a mockery of our entire government. He's an embarrassment, a security risk, and the poster child for a party that has sold their souls to win at all costs. The grand old party. No morals, no character, no platform, just power for power's sake. And if you still think that serves you, then you are sorely mistaken. And she's right. It's easy to make jokes about George Santos. I do it all the time on this radio broadcast. But the fact that his fellow Republicans in Congress, now that they know what a fraud he is, the fact that they are not demanding his expulsion. Yes, there have been a few Democrats who put forth a resolution saying he should be thrown out of Congress, but Not a single Republican has spoken up and said, yeah, we're embarrassed by this guy. We don't know how this guy got seated. He does not represent who we are or what we want to do, and he's got to go. No. Have you heard that from anybody? No, you haven't. You haven't, and we shouldn't forget that. Last but not least, in the little bit of time we have left, uh, the uh, White House did release the president's medical summary President Biden is a healthy, vigorous 80-year-old male, fit to successfully execute the duties of the presidency. Uh, he does have a few age-related things. He has a little bit of atrial fibrillation, but not enough to cause him um, problems or that, that needs any kind of surgery. Yeah, his cholesterol is a little bit high. He has some acid reflux. He has seasonal allergies, and he has some... Um, arthritis in his spine but you know what i have most of that and i'm not 80 so the news overall for president biden is very good we are going to take a break and a real break because for the next 30 minutes we are going to visit our pet of the month segment have a little bit of fun heading into the weekend before we go back to um a final hour of politics we'll be right back after this Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. 
Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. This is our regular Pet of the Month segment, something designed to spend 30 minutes putting a smile on your face as we roll into the weekend. We are joined by uh, Craig Batagowski, who is, of course, our favorite pharmacist. He is with... Um, Craig, are you there? I'm here. I can hear you. Yeah, Mark Drug. Oh yeah, I know, I know. I just it's I was hearing some strange I was hearing some strange noise. Um and that's usually a bad thing when I hear strange noises. Greg Badagowski, Mark Drugs in Deerfield and Roselle, and Tracy Elliott, president and CEO of Anti Cruelty. Uh welcome gen- gentlemen and um sad news to report. Uh we still have our same pet of the month. Apollo is still our dog. Apollo has had a hard time fi- uh, finding a forever, forever f- a family. Uh, Tracy, uh, I know that a lot of times you say that dogs that are bigger, that weigh more, are hard to place. Uh, sometimes younger dogs with a lot of energy, hard to place, too. Right. They are. Uh, although I'm telling you, Joan, this dog is so chill. Really? Absolutely. Yes, he's. I'm sure when he gets out in the you know the play yard or whatever, he's got lots of energy. But um, in the in the kennel that he's in, he just walks up to you very quietly, puts his neck up to the to the cage to be uh, petted, and he's just got this real sort of chill uh, personality. He's beautiful. So wow. um, he, he's a big guy. Although he's he's not really heavy. He's tall and skinny. But um, he's not your normal kind of nutcase big dog in the, you know, in mm-hmm. the cage. Um, so I really don't. It's just we are having a hard time, as is everybody in the country, um, finding homes quickly for big dogs. It's just it's everywhere. So and it doesn't really matter whether they're, you know, nutcases or quiet ones or whatever. It's just uh, for some reason those are not moving quickly. But he is a lovely, lovely dog. Why do you think that is? Because, you know, the the usual uh, reason, well, you know, like some people don't understand that, like, Great Danes and Mastiffs. Uh, Great Danes and Mastiffs are actually great dogs if you live in an apartment because those yep. super giant breeds require very little exercise. As a matter of fact, they don't want a whole lot of exercise. Right. You talk about a dog that's a couch potato, you know, you're talking about a Great Dane and a Mastiff. And I've had... All different kinds of dogs. Usually they're all rescue dogs. They're all kind of a mix of breeds. And if you're worried that a big dog means big poop, it doesn't necessarily mean it. I've had medium-sized, like, German Shepherd mixes, and the Mastiff's poop was not significantly more. So I know because people are always like, oh, my God, it must just, the poop must just be, you know, and it's not. It's real. It's really not. I'm a, as you know, I'm a, I'm a lover of big dogs. I don't think that your big dogs are big enough, but. (laughs) Right, right, right. Well, we think maybe, and we're, you know, everybody's trying to figure this out all over the country, but, you know, after COVID, everybody wants to have a lot of freedom, the ability to get out and do things and travel and so forth. And perhaps they're just reluctant right now to take on a responsibility of a big dog. That's uh, not as mobile and harder to board and things like that. That's a guess. We don't know. There was also, of course, as we've talked on this show many times, a huge number of adoptions, you know, early in the pandemic. And perhaps the so-called market is saturated. 
we're all trying to figure it out, and we're doing everything we know how to do with creative events and waiving adoption fees. And by the way, as always, if somebody comes in and wants to see Apollo and wants to take him home, all you have to do is say Joan Esposito and we'll waive his adoption fees. That doesn't seem to be moving uh, animals either. So I don't know. We don't know. Our little, our, our, is, it, is it that people want puppies or they just want little tiny dogs that are like, you know, the ones that weigh like seven to ten pounds? Well, every size and kind and age of dog of the adoptions are down. Again, not just here, oh. but everywhere. However, they do move more quickly than than the large dogs. Um, what most of us are finding is cats, cat adoptions are super healthy. Um, in fact, we are now transporting uh, cats in from the south where they would not have a chance to, to uh, find a home. Obviously, kit, kitten season is coming soon, so we won't be doing that for very long. But the demand for cats is really high, and we have lovely cats. But the demand for dogs has just uh, not recovered from from the pandemic. Huh. That's really that's really puzzling to me. Um, Mark, I do, or Craig, I do have an idea of something you need to carry at Mark Drugs. I saw, I think it was on Instagram. Apparently, the New York City subway instituted a rule that you could only bring a dog on the subway mm-hmm. if the dog was in a bag. And I've seen a dozen pictures of all, basically any dog you can think of, the owner figured out how to put that dog in a bag. I saw this one dog had to weigh 50 or 60 pounds, legs hanging out, head hanging out, but man, that body was in a bag. (laughs) I've seen that too. Hilarious. That would be uh, that'd be an interesting addition to our inventory. Um, I Dog bags. Uh, some of the larger breeds, or something like uh, like Apollo here, you know, would have you know legs sticking out for sure. Yes. More like a Apollo's bag legs are very long. Bag. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. they no, showed they pictures of people sitting with these like huge garbage bags, and in the hole in the top, <laughs> you see this little dog face. I mean, it's right. just. The people are very creative when they want to go someplace with their dogs. I give them, right. I give them all the dog awards today. Right, oh, absolutely. And you know what? They're fo- they're following the rules. They they gave you this this kind of very broad um, instructions that as long as your dog fits in a bag, they didn't specify how big that bag is. So um, that's I think right. that's, uh, that's, that's very right. creative. The folks in New York who are trying to transport their pets around like they they were used to. Now, really, in my right. book. So long as your dog is well behaved, you know, is able to uh, calm down and uh, you know sit near you, I, I, I have no reason that, that there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to go uh, with us, especially on a train. When it comes to on the airplanes, I understand why there's restrictions in how large the animal can be. Um, I know that the rule of thumb is 20 pounds, which Apollo is clearly more than 20 pounds, but. Some of the other adoptable pets over at Anti-Cruelty will certainly meet that criteria. But guess what? The TSA is not going to be weighing your dog as long as it fits in the in the uh, uh, the, the carry-on, the, the uh, right the cage that you bring onto the plane. Uh, no one's going to be trying to second-guess exactly how much your pup weighs plus the the uh, the weight of the carrier. So, um, and Joan, I would have, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So go ahead, please, please, Craig. I was going to say the the unintended consequence, or perhaps the consequence that nobody would think about, about not allowing pets on the CTA is if you live on the south side and have an animal, there are no veterinary offices down there, very few. 
and uh, you know we have you bring your animal up to River North. Um, we have a provision for low cost or no cost vet care, and we're significantly expanding that. But you got to get your dog there. If you don't have a car mm-hmm. uh, and you don't have other forms of transportation, it is really affecting the health of, of animals. We go down and do wellness clinics um, in places on the west side and the south side where there are you know, veterinary deserts, so to speak. And we see animals who have not seen a, a vet maybe ever or a long time. And the reason isn't because the, the human doesn't care. It's because there's no way to get their animal to a vet. Uh, and so there's probably additional consequences that no one thinks about to prohibiting these animals from being on the train. That is you make a you make a really good point. I mean, we're always talking about communities that have, you know, food deserts and, you know, a lack of pharmacies and a lack of grocery stores. But it isn't just those things that lack. And, you know, as you know, as both of you know, sometimes at night when I can't sleep, I um, I look at pictures of dogs. <laughs> That's my I don't count sheep. I look at pictures of dogs. And I always follow rescues and I read the bios and so many of them say, you know, it's clear this dog, this cat has never had any medical attention or hasn't had medical attention for a long time. And that always breaks my heart. Right. And we tend to want to blame the people. And uh, oftentimes it's because they simply don't have the resources. Yep. And, and the availability of the care. Working with anti-cruelty is that you're going to get an animal, like if you choose to open your house to one of these animals, you're going to get an animal who has actually had a checkup and who has, That's right. if they have health issues, it's not going to be a surprise. I mean, there are things right. that can come up and like, just like with humans, you know, you never really know what type of, uh, what you might be genetically predisposed to until it happens. But upon adoption, you know that this animal has been checked out thoroughly with a veterinarian. That's right. And you get support afterwards, too. It's not like... It has, you know, all of its uh, vaccinations and and uh, neutered. All of that is just part of the adoption package. Mm-hmm. We are doing our regular Pet of the Month show. Uh, Tracy is here. Um, Craig is here. Apollo is on our website. We are going to take a quick break and be back with more after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. This is our Pet of the Month segment. Tracy Elliott is the president and CEO of Anti Cruelty. Craig Budagowski is our favorite pharmacist from Mark Drugs in Deerfield and Roselle. And our pup is uh, Apollo, a teenager with a lot of love to give, who is uh, waiting for his forever home. Uh, Tracy, do I know, do you guys, I know you have an Amazon wish list for anti-cruelty. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, do you also accept donations from people who walk in? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of when years ago when my puggle died, I had all of this, and, and one of my cats as well, I had all of this unopened food 
And, yeah. uh, you know, luckily I did find a shelter near me that would accept, um, because, you know, you don't want to just, it just seems like such a sin to, to throw that right. out. Does anti-cruelty right. accept those kinds of donations? We do. If it's open, we can't use it. But if it's unopened, absolutely. We use it for our community food distribution program. Um, we, since March of what was the first year of the pandemic, 2020, we have distributed over a million pounds of food through uh, uh, Alderman Beal's uh, drive-up at food pantry, or food pantries, forgive me, and other uh, other venues. So that's really good to use for that. We also take you know towels and blankets and also any other kind of pet supplies that, that either we can use or folks in the community can use. We're very happy to take those. And you do have an Amazon wish list as well, right? Well, Amazon has has discontinued wish lists. They uh, have. Effective yet? Mm-hmm. They announced recently that they're discontinuing it entirely. I don't know when that was effective, if it's effective now, but it's happening soon in any case. But, yes, we did have Amazon wish list. And certainly, like, during the pandemic, when we did a, a call out for food, for instance, for our community program, we just got, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds of food. They were coming in huge boxes. So that was a wonderful program. But for some reason, Jeff Bezos, I think, needed a new yacht for his second yacht uh, for his uh, helicopter yacht. I don't know if you know that, but he's he's got a yacht for his yacht for his helicopters. Oh, and my God. I know. It's really tough out there. Yeah, I wonder how he's. I wonder how he survives. Poor guy. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I did get a notice because I'm signed up for Amazon Smile, which is something that they created that you could sign up for, and it didn't really change yeah. your experience on Amazon. Just that right. for every purchase you made, there would a few cents. Uh, right. You know, a few dollars would go to the charity of your choice. And I I got an right. email that they are discontinuing that program as well. Not being yeah, quite so friendly to charities as we would like. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that okay, that I stinks. Could be wrong then, maybe. Maybe it is smiles and not, not wish lists. So I'm sorry, oh. Jeff Bezos. Don't sue me. Yeah, yeah well, you know. Wish list might be continuing. <laughs> Well, let's let's no hope because evil. yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of the charities that I support, you know, periodically I check the I check the wish list because it's um, sure. I mean, it's there's nothing wrong with giving money, but sometimes, you know, oh, no. money feels empty, you know. Yes. <laughs> yes. And you know that it's, you, you know, you know, the organization needs it because they placed it on the list. And uh, no, I agree. And I, I I'm I'm. Glad I was wrong. It smiles that they just continued. Oh, uh, excellent! Yeah. yeah, excellent. Because I was going to suggest, you know, you should get, uh, you should uh, have uh, Craig give you like a list of, you know, like C- CBD chews and other things that uh, Mark Drugs. Oh yeah, yeah. We got to get some of those Mark Drugs uh, things that support animal health over to anti cruelty. What do you think, Craig? Oh, yeah, I'd be happy to contribute. Um, now, something like CBD is something that's not for every single animal. Uh, just keep that in mind. There are plenty of different supplements right. that can be used right. um, to right. control anxiety and control uh, inflammation. Um, so something like CBD, while 
it is very effective, especially in canines. And when they get, um, let's say, uh, storm fright or around 4th of July, you know there's going to be fireworks. You know your animal is going to freak out if it has in the past. Right. past does kind of predict what's going to happen the next time the same event comes up. Or perhaps uh, you have... Um, you have an animal that has had some sort of trauma in the past that whenever a loud noise goes on, all of a sudden, for uh, hours, if not days, they're just not themselves. This is mm-hmm. where it comes into play, where it can be very useful to hopefully kind of treat the symptoms uh, as a over-the-counter basis. Um, there's also, right. of course, medications that we can make at Mark Drugs that do require a prescription, but something like trazodone, where um, right. humans typically use it for sleep, Animals will use it. In fact, they use it sometimes in um, in a kennel situation, or if an animal has just had surgery and they need to actually right. have them calm down so they don't reopen wounds or something like that. Right. So there are prescription right. and over-the-counter options, but uh, but yes, by all means, if uh, if you would like a donation to the animal mm-hmm. cruelty with some of our Green Gorilla CBD products that contain <laughs> roughly three milligrams of CBD, active CBD, in each treat, specifically for canines. Um, felines also, they do actually respond pretty well to CBD, but giving a feline any sort of liquid medication, there's always a, uh, a little bit more of a struggle. Someone like Willow, right. someone like Apollo, no problem. You could probably give them a, a, you know, a gigantic you know, one-inch wide uh, tablet that tastes like lamb, no problem. But when it comes to my little pumpkin over here, um, we're trying to get her to the veterinarian. I'm trying to sneak the CBD into her food. Haven't had much right. luck. Uh, <laughs> she's just got to get in there and like, look, pumps, you're going to take this thing, and we're taking you over to the vet, and that's really the only way that uh, it can get done. But, yes, uh, yeah. it is something that I'd be happy to, you know, donate to the Anti-Cruelty Society for the animals who need it um, for, you know, anxiety or, I guess, uh, down the road, like, uh, it can work for inflammation, and um, yeah, it can, it can just be something that can help reduce the pain that the elderly animals might experience as they age. If you need any help, uh, Craig, I've had cats my entire adult life, and I'm really good at getting them in my lap, getting them secure, popping open their jaw, and whatever medicine or dropper, getting it way in the back, and then closing their mouth and stroking their chin till it goes down. Bing, bang, boom. It's a, it's a skill I have perfected. One of the few skills that I'm really good at. It's, it's a gift, similar John. process, but mine involves oven mitts and a <laughs> because I'm going to get scratched. And that's okay. Right. You know, she takes the medicine, and there we go. Good that's grief. A- good grief of, uh, uh, you know... You can also trim their claws so that they can't scratch quite as uh, deeply uh, as uh, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things I think I could I could help you with, Craig. Um, you know, one of the things that, Tracy, I'd like you to talk about is the foster program. Uh, both Ray yeah. and I have taken the training. We are fosters. And yeah. one of the things, you know, that I think is so helpful if if you're toying with the idea of becoming a foster one of the nice things anti-cruelty has a foster group i I can't remember if we're on facebook or what the heck we're on um but if you like people like people who will foster an animal and they'll say oh my gosh you know i've had this cat for a week and he won't come out of the corner 
And those of us who have kind of <laughs> been around for a while, we're like, don't worry about it. You know, don't worry about it. Just make sure there's food and there's water and there's litter. And in the cat's right. own time, whether it's a week or two weeks or whether it's a month, eventually they will start to feel more comfortable. It's really, right. I, I really enjoy being a part of that community. Talk about that, Tracy. I sure will. Thank you for bringing that up. Well, two aspects of fostering that make it such a win-win. No matter what we do in the shelter, no matter how much we concentrate on what we call best care and enrichment and things like that, the shelter is not the best place for any animal. It's highly, there's a lot of stimulation, there's noise, there's smells, there's other animals, um, no matter what we do. So to get an animal a break from that atmosphere and get them in a home, even for a brief period of time, is often, you know, the difference between uh, being able to get an animal in a home and not because they, if they begin to break down in the shelter and we can get them into a foster home, that gives them more time. We also have uh, direct foster ambassadors, too, who a lot of our um, adoptions during COVID were direct from the foster home to the new home, and we're still continuing that program. And obviously the other winner is the foster uh, parent, because as you know, uh, Joan, it's just you feel like they're doing something incredibly important for that animal. You enjoy their presence. And oftentimes, people that, that's how they find out who and what they want to adopt. Um, you get a particular animal in your home, you realize that's not the energy level that works for me, or maybe it is the energy level energy mm-hmm. level, and you become a foster failure, like I have done twice in a row. <laughs> and I know, Joan, you've been a failure, too. This is a good kind of failure, by the way. But Yes. Um, so fostering is just good for all parties. It's good for us because it also opens a space for another homeless animal to come in and occupy that space. So fostering is just a, a wonderful thing for anybody to do, and it's a win-win for all. Yeah, and... Uh... I know uh, I was uh, just listening to Hal Sparks, who does a show with us on Saturday. He's based out in L.A., and he was just talking Uh about how he and his uh, girlfriend just finished fostering a litter of kittens. Because sometimes I know, Tracy, you bring in an animal and they give birth, or somebody brings in um, a mother and kittens that they found outside somewhere. And sometimes those kittens are just too young to to yes. be adopted and and God right. I people like that really hats off to them because um, yes. I mean that's like having a bunch of babies in the house. It is. They have to be uh, they have to be fed every two hours. You have to stimulate them to go to the bathroom until they're a certain age. But I you know we're about to the point where we're going to be getting buckets of them <laughs> every day, um, and we have a wonderful neo made adopt, uh, foster training program to teach you how to do it. And then uh, uh, tons of people come out and help because many of these, they're oftentimes the mother is gone uh, or the mother can't take care of them. And these kittens have absolutely no chance without constant human intervention until they're um, strong enough to eat on their own and poop on their own and, you know, be free of the danger of cats have so much vulnerability to of a respiratory infection and other kinds of communicable, communicable diseases like that in the shelter. So, yeah, the foster, uh, the neonate foster program is is wonderful. Craig, um, Tracy just mentioned about respiratory diseases. I know that for people, they tend to be seasonal, like we always say in the fall, you know, get your flu shot because flu season is coming. Is Are there 
illness seasons for dogs? Just like any other mammal, when there's uh, certain flowers blooming, certain trees giving off, um, you know, the, uh, certain types of allergens, it can be seasonal. And there are options for canines and felines as far as using either classic antihistamines that are also used in humans or ones that are more specific for patients. Uh, one example is chlorpheniramine, uh, something that humans use. It's a kind of old-school antihistamine. And we do see more and more prescription, not quite yet, but in the near future, we'll be getting more and more orders for this chlorpheniramine, which is just a kind of an old-school, somewhat sedative um, antihistamine. It doesn't sedate uh, felines as much as it does humans, but that's just a potential side effect. Anyway, it's difficult, like I discussed earlier with, with pumpkin, it's difficult to have a feline take something by mouth. So at Mark Drugs, with a prescription, we can make actually chlorpheniramine in a transdermal formulation that's actually rubbed into the feline's ear, the, the, the skin huh. of the ear mm-hmm. like where you can see the veins and you don't have much contact with fur. So, um, yes, if you can get your dog to take chlorpheniramine, no problem. If you can take, get your cat to take chlorpheniramine by mouth, no problem. But when it is a problem, that's where Mark Drugs comes in and we can actually give the two or four milligrams of chlorpheniramine needed, whether it's a seasonal allergy or it might be just um, something that is actually uh, uh, environmental, like within the house that can be used year-round. But I do expect to see an uptick in prescriptions for that particular one and other medications that can be used in a transdermal formula uh, that just bypasses having to uh, traumatize your, your feline with trying to put a pill uh, or, or some sort of liquid that, you know, we'll do our best to flavor it up like beef, chicken, or marshmallow. Surprisingly, <laughs> felines do love marshmallow. But uh, when they're just getting a little ear massage twice a day, sometimes they take the medicine a lot better. Or, or take care of your traumatized local pharmacist. Um, that he needs a lot of care, too. Uh, Tracy uh-huh. and Craig, thank you. I love doing Pet of the Month segments. Um, I really appreciate the work both of you both of you do to get homes and to get healthy for the uh, pets that uh, need both of those things. Thank you, guys. Thanks for your support Thank of you our know. segment. Appreciate it. Take care. We're going to be well. We're going to take a break for news and uh, come back with a lot of quick politics right after this. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive on WCPT 820. In Chicago, we have something called the Spertus Institute. It is uh, an institute focused on Jewish studies. They do what they call a critical conversations program every year. The 2023 Critical Conversations Program is designed to look at the rising anti-Semitism that we are experiencing across this country. There are a number of experts and researchers in the field who are going to be called upon to be a part of these critical conversations. One of them is Dr. Dove Waxman, who is from UCLA, a political science professor and uh, internationally recognized expert on contemporary anti-Semitism. We welcome uh, Dr. Dove Waxman to our show. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Waxman. Thank you for having me on the program. 
what is part of the critical conversation that you are going to be a part of? What is it that you want to convey to the audience about the state of anti-Semitism today? Well, first and foremost, I think it's important to convey the um, anxiety and growing sense of insecurity that many Jewish Americans feel um, about uh, their life in the United States. This is, I think, quite unprecedented, this sense of uh, fear that has really been growing over the last few years among Jewish Americans. So I think first and foremost, it's to recognize that um, and also to acknowledge um, what's creating that fear? What's, what are the, the um, indications that are alarming? In particular, the, um, the increasing number of anti-Semitic incidents and particularly anti-Semitic violence. Uh, but the other thing I think um, I want to talk about is uh, the need to um, differentiate between anti-Semitism and some criticisms or opposition to Israel and not to kind of conflate the two, uh, opposition to Israel or anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, as often happens in, in discussions about anti-Semitism today. Well, that often happens with our politicians. Any politician that uh, is at all critical of the government of Israel is immediately labeled anti-Semitic. Explain that in a little bit greater detail, why those accusations are made, why people feel that way, and, and why that's incorrect. Well, I wouldn't say it's always incorrect. It's sometimes incorrect. Sometimes incorrect. Okay. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, there, there is a perception in, among, among, within some parts of the Jewish community. I mean, Jewish community in the United States and elsewhere has uh, lots of differences of opinions about what is anti-Semitic and particularly what's anti-Semitic uh, vis-a-vis Israel. Um, but there is a, a, a strong feeling among many uh, Jews that uh, opposition to Israel, or at least opposition to Israel's existence as a Jewish state, uh, is automatically anti-Semitic. And so when they hear Palestinians or Palestinian rights activists um, calling for, say, a one-state solution to the conflict or opposing Zionism or calling or saying that Israel should no longer be a Jewish state, for many Jews, that, uh, that kind of exceeds the bounds of legitimate criticism and is perceived as anti-Semitic. Um, the other reason I think um, some Jews and Jewish organizations respond to criticism of Israel as anti-Semitic is because they fear that they feel that Israel is being singled out for criticism and that uh, other countries with, say, worse human rights records aren't getting the same amount of criticism. Now, I think there are other reasons for why Israel singled out that aren't and that don't have anything to do with anti-Semitism. Um, but there is a feeling um, that, you know, anti-Semitism drives some of this criticism of Israel. So I think when organizations or individuals make these accusations against um, supporters of the Palestinians and particularly against um, politicians who are prominent um, supporters of the Palestinians, I think that's often driving it. There's this, this tendency, uh, unfortunate tendency, to equate kind of harsh criticism of Israel or support for Palestinian rights with anti-Semitism. And I think we really have to try to avoid conflating those two things. Let's move back to one of your earlier points, that there is rising fear in this country because there seems to be a serious uptick in violent incidents and and vandalism. Okay, whether you're Jewish or not, you know, I think a reasonable person finds all that appalling. But 
doesn't always know how, how do how do I fight that? How do you fight that? What do we do to quell that kind of sentiment? Well, I think, you know, I'm an educator, so I always emphasize the importance of education. So I think first and foremost, what we all have to do is to educate ourselves about what anti-Semitism is. I think that means understanding that anti-Semitism is a type of racism, a form of racism. So we have to be aware, understanding of how racism works, not just racism uh, against Jews, but also anti-black racism, anti-Muslim racism. We have to recognize that very often these uh, different forms of racism uh, are linked. People who target Jews often may target black people, Muslims, etc. Um, so I think education is the first uh, and most important task because there's so much misunderstanding uh, and confusion today about what anti-Semitism is and how it operates. And the other thing is to call it out when we come across it. So, yeah, we're not going to generally necessarily be uh, hopefully around, you know, extremist preaching uh, violence. But we may well encounter whether in the, in the, in, uh, online or in our, in our, among our friends and family members, uh, anti-Semitic kind of comments, uh, stereotypes, tropes. And it's important when we hear these kinds of things to call them out. And that doesn't mean to say to accuse somebody of being an anti-Semite, because very often people use anti-Semitic stereotypes or trips without realizing that they're anti-Semitic. So it's about educating. Give me an example of one that we need to uh, make sure we point out in regular conversation when it occurs. Sure. So I think probably the most common anti-Semitic trope is this notion of Jews as very powerful. And often this idea that that Jews or a Kabbalah small group are kind of secretly pulling the strings of governments, of financial organizations, of banks, and kind of controlling things and plotting uh, to kind of control things from behind the scenes. And this is a long-standing anti-Semitic trope. And very often it can come up, for example, when people are talking about the activities of, say, the Israel lobby, the pro-Israel lobby in discussions about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It's quite easy to slip from talking about the pro-Israel lobby to kind of conveying this idea of a, a, a shadowy cabal of Jews controlling Congress. Um, it also comes up in conversations about, say, George Soros on the right, where he's oh, God. In, the, in a manner that Jews have been depicted in kind of anti-Semitic propaganda for years. You know, rich Jews, greedy Jews wanting to control things. Um, so when we see that, even if the word Jew isn't explicitly mentioned, as in the case of George Soros, we have to understand that what what's, that's really evoking is a long-standing anti-Semitic trope. And on this radio station, you know, we cover a lot of politics. And, of course, we had Marjorie Taylor Greene with her Jewish space lasers. And, you know, it's easy to make fun of somebody saying something so ridiculous and so absurd. But, you know, she wasn't making a joke when she talked about Jewish space lasers. I mean, that's a, a symptom of this whole thing we're talking about, isn't it? It is. I think actually, in, with regards to Marjorie Taylor Greene, the more concerning thing isn't just that kind of, that's obviously ludicrous, but, you know, appearing alongside at rallies with far-right white supremacists and Holocaust deniers. Uh, that is, to me, a much more serious 
anti-Semitic offence because that leads to the mainstreaming, uh, the normalisation of anti-Semitic ideas in in the Republican Party. Um, but yeah, I think you know what one unfortunately we've seen in in, in American politics lately is. Um, you know, the politicization of anti-Semitism accusations. So the way in which Ilhan Omar was recently, you know, kicked off of her committee of the Foreign Affairs Committee because of tweets she made years ago for which she's since apologized, whereas Marjorie Taylor Greene is actually given a high-ranking committee assignment. And at mm-hmm. the same time, the Republican Party claims to be serious about fighting anti-Semitism. We really have... Um you know, we it, we really have come to accept this. It's it's almost as if one of the things that I say to people about Trump is that pre-Trump, there were always racists. There were always homophobes around, but there was peer pressure. They maybe weren't as open about it because they knew it was not acceptable. And so many things that it seems that were unacceptable before are acceptable now it does seem like we are starting to normalize a lot of this hate speech to me that's absolutely right and i think you're right to identify uh former president trump as one reason for this that he certainly kind of you know in decrying political correctness and in the statements that he made uh that kind of signaled to his supporters that it was acceptable to engage in that kind of rhetoric and to make those kind of statements and we saw when he first ran for president and that there was an uptick in hate crimes even in specific places uh where his rallies had taken place so i think president trump bears some responsibility for this kind of normalization and mainstreaming of of uh racist, not just anti-Semitic, but racism in general. The other, the other factor, probably even more important, I point to is social media. Because in the past, you know, people didn't, were, were, it, newspapers or magazines didn't publish typically racist opinions. Racist mm-hmm. People weren't as exposed to it as much. There wasn't, it was, um, you know, it was whispered, if you like, rather than, than shouted. Nowadays, uh, racist anti-Semitic, they have a megaphone in social media and uh, ideas that were once relegated to the fringe of society and were once marginalized can now become very quickly mainstream and popular. I think the best example of that is the QAnon conspiracy theory, something that, you know, starts out on the kind of far, uh, far uh, reaches of society and, and now has gained more and more uh, support. And the ideas that it's put forward have become quite many people are subscribing to them. Yeah. What do you see for the for the future? I mean, I agree with you that I think social media has really contributed to a lot of um, a lot of things that are in existence now that are really negative and were previously unthinkable. But maybe I have some hope and I don't know, maybe my family is just weird, but like my daughter, um, you know, she's in her mid 20s. She's not she's not on any social media she she has no interest in it and and she told me many years ago she told me facebook is for old people so is it just my is it just my generation do we just have to just you know die off uh, to sort of bring some balance back to society well, I think there's things we can do before that, uh, uh, before we all die off. I think, for one thing, it's important uh, for com- the social media companies not to monetize 
um, you know, the, uh, the kind of most outrageous remarks and offensive remarks that people make on social media. So at the moment, you know, their algorithms are designed to, to uh, boost the engagement, the likes of those who make the more extreme comments. And that includes people disagreeing with those comments. It still ends up circulating them more. So I think there's things that social media companies can do right now um, that can that can at least I mean, they, they do a lot of good things as well, social media. And I don't want to just bash social media, but we need to ensure that, you know, they are, are, are more careful and more diligent about preventing hate speech on their platforms, because we've seen clearly that the increase of hate speech on social media actually leads to hate crimes in the real world. Um, and so I think unless, until uh, media, social media companies really take that on and, and, reckon, and not try to essentially profit from hate speech, um, then, you know, I think that is something that they can do. But at the same time, obviously, we also have to ensure that um, people have freedom of speech. Um, and so it, it, it is challenging, but I think that would be something um, that can be done right now with sufficient uh, social political pressure. Dr. Dove Waxman, you can read his writing in The Washington Post, The Guardian, uh, Atlantic. He's also a political science professor at UCLA, and he is going to be part of the critical conversation addressing rising anti-Semitism. It will be in person at Spurtis Institute this Monday. It's also going to be online. You can uh, dial in and watch it this coming Monday, President's Day, at 7 o'clock. Dr. Waxman, thank you so much for joining us. I'd love to talk to you in the future again about this in uh, greater detail. I appreciate your being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on the program. We are going to take a break. We're going to shift gears and uh, look at some local politics right after this. Take Joan Esposito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. This is Barry Maltz with the Small Business Radio Show. And like you, I've had a lot of businesses over the last 25 years. First, I went out of business. Then I got kicked out by my two partners. Then I sold my last business and I was able to pay back the bank the $1.3 million I owed them. And funny enough, my wife tells me I got her back just about the same time. Join me Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. right here on WCPT 820, where I show you how to get your small business unstuck, grow the company you've always wanted, and finally make the money that you deserve. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. You know, the city of Chicago is not the only place where there's an election. It's not the only community that is looking to seat some potentially new members to their city council. There is uh, an election in Naperville. Yes, Naperville, famous for Alan Krzyzewski and Bob Odenkirk. <laughs> there is an election for the Naperville City Council going on. Jody Trendler is one of the candidates there and joins us now to talk about Naperville and her candidacy. Jody, thanks for being here. Hi, Joan. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> well, you know, um, sometimes... I get a little too Chicago-centric, and uh, sometimes it's easy to forget that there are other communities that uh, have a lot going on. Tell the audience what Naperville is like. I happen to know that it is beautiful out there. 
Well, it absolutely is. So it's amazing how many amenities um, that we have out here that actually do give you the same amenities and feeling of uh, Chicago, but it's just much more of a small town, hometown feel. Um, That's one of the reasons why I moved here 27 years ago (laughs) and decided to raise my family here. Um, because it is, it's a big city with a very small town feel. Um, so it's really nice and a great place, one of the great places to raise a family. Uh, it's just been rated one of the safest cities in the country, or the safest city, I think. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me about your background. Oh, okay. So, um, well, I'm running for city council now because um, pretty much for the past 15 years, um, I've actually been working on a lot of sustainability initiatives um, in various capacities um, with many of our community institutions. Um, so it started um, pretty much anything that has to do with sustainability for Naperville I've been involved with. Um, so I've worked with six different city councils. I've worked with city staff. I've worked with the school districts, um, park district, chamber of commerce, Um, A lot of it identifying ways to actually save taxpayer money as well as make our whole overall community safer. So, for example, um, working with School District 204, I implemented zero waste programming that um, was able to identify $25,000 worth of savings. Um, Also... um, Promoting and twenty five thousand dollars worth of savings. I, I'm confused. Uh, exactly how? Yeah. So from a lot of waste production efforts. So essentially, what it involved was um, transitioning all of the um, bio waste from the school, um, all the organics, and we did composting throughout the entire school. So everything. Oh cafeterias, teachers' lounges, classrooms. And so uh, by implementing composting, that reduces the overall waste that goes to the landfill, um, which has many benefits in and of itself. But just by reducing um, the waste from the school, it allowed the overall waste um, hauling fees to be reduced. So recycling, um, finding ways to uh, repurpose things, um, and with the composting, it it really did a lot. So installing hand dryers instead of paper towels, um, installing a dishwasher instead of disposables in the cafeteria. So it was. There's a lot of things that can be done to help save our planet as well as our pocketbook. <laughs> and if you get elected to the Naperville City Council, what do you want to accomplish there? Ah, so great question. Um, well, my latest endeavor. Um, working with the city has been to initiate the Naperville Environment and Sustainability Task Force, or it's NEST as it's commonly known here now. And essentially what that is, it's now been established as the official advising entity for City Council on Sustainability Issues. And what we did um, through that task force is we spent a year and a half ident- researching and identifying um, over 80 ways to address our climate challenges and reduce our overall community-wide greenhouse gas emissions. Um, but it's also a lot of initiatives that make our community safer, 
healthier and improves efficiency. Um, so <clears throat> there's a lot of things that I would love to do, and I really want to step up and be the champion for sustainability because it's not a priority for the city right now, and that is what I would hope to do um, is actually incorporating sustainability throughout all of our decision-making processes and um, making sure it's a priority and included. The city did a fantastic job um, a couple of years ago by integrating diversity, equity, and inclusion into our mission statement. And they've done a phenomenal job with their programming and researching research that they're doing um, to make our community, you know, more inclusive, um, which is fantastic because that is a critical component to having a sustainable community. Um, so a lot of people don't realize it, but sustainability, when you talk sustainability, people want it, but they don't really understand exactly what that means. Exactly. I understand. Yeah. It's confusing. So, yes, it is. It's a lot. So and you need to have all three legs of a sustainability stool in order for it to truly be sustainable. Yeah, we have to protect our natural resources, you know, and we have to include all of our people. And we also have to have a thriving economy. And by taking, approaching these things with the lens of sustainability, it just improves things all across the board. So, Well, I wish you a lot of luck in your candidacy to be on the Naperville City Council. And um, uh, do you have a website people can go to to find out more about you? Yes, I absolutely do. So it's www.jody, J-O-D-I. The number four, Naperville.com. Jody Trendler will be on the ballot for the Naperville City Council election. Jody, thanks for being here. Uh, so much fun to talk to you. And it's, and we've got to remember that there are, is life outside of the city of Chicago. Help you, uh, thank you for helping us remember that. <laughs> we are going to take a break now. We're going to be back with more news right after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. One of the issues that we have been talking about a lot in the last few weeks is the issue of housing. Is it affordable? Is it available? Are there shelter beds? It is, uh, it is a complex issue. It is an issue that everybody is struggling with. You may have seen the news. Um, Mayor Lightfoot wants the unhoused people who sleep at O'Hare to be either taken to shelters or removed from O'Hare. It is a problem that um, housing is an issue that is always a part of any society, whether it's safe, whether it's accessible. Um, we'd like to continue this discussion with Jacqueline Azarek Koreath, the Director of Housing Advocacy at the network. Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to talk about these issues. Um, you know, we, we have talked about this. 
and I know that everybody has some opinions about it. What are I know that you run into a lot of misconceptions people have about housing. Talk about what some of those are. Sure. So I work at the network, and for people that haven't worked with the network before, you probably have, and you may just not know it, but we're a collaborative membership uh, organization dedicating to improving the lives of those impacted by gender-based violence. That includes running the Illinois Domestic Violence Hotline, connecting survivors of gender-based violence um, to shelter and advocacy and other services. Um, so I, I deal with a lot of misconceptions in my work because I'm the director of housing advocacy because a lot of people think that if someone is in an unsafe relationship, an abusive relationship, that um, if they want to leave, they can just go to shelter. But I am here to tell you that that is not the case. Often we don't have shelter beds available, especially in the city of Chicago for survivors of domestic violence. Um, I would say that's usually the most uh, needed uh, issue that people call for is shelter every year after year. About a third of the time when people call, there's not shelter beds available. I would say almost two-thirds of the time when people call, there's not cribs available. So you have a Why? lot of survivors going to be silent. We know this is a problem. We know there's a need for this. Why don't we provide more? I, I That is a great question that I wish I had the answer to. Part of my job is advocating for increased funding on those issues. I'm sure all of the victim service providers in our area ask themselves the same question day to day. I mean, the um, some of my colleagues that work with me that work at the Only Domestic Violence Hotline, some of the best people that I know, um, are constantly having to answer these calls trying to explain that there's no space available because when they do that, um, survivors just have to call back day after day looking for an open space, looking for a safe place to go so that they can leave the violent situation that they're in. So is it a question of money? Is that is that what we need? We need to put more money into this issue. I know that when Eric Zorn filled in for me, he talked to somebody who works with the unhoused in Chicago, and he said that the city had taken some of the money from these programs and put it toward like buying and rehabbing motels or creating tiny houses somewhere. But what they forgot was that there was going to be a gap and so there was the the shelter beds available were cut by half because of the lack of funding, because the money was being shifted to these other programs. But until these other housing situations get off the ground, there's this big gap. So would you say that the number one solution is is a bigger budget? So I think a lack of resources is certainly an issue, but. I think we also have to look at the continuum of housing that we provide people that are experiencing housing instability, right? Because shelter is really the first stop. So if someone's in an immediate crisis, you know, if they're fleeing violence, shelter is that first stop. But we need to be able to move people to better housing solutions, right? So whether that's rapid rehousing, transitional housing, some short-term uh, housing option, or permanent housing for people that have, you know, may, maybe experienced chronic homelessness or, you know, other issues that cause them need additional support. And I feel like along that continuum of housing needs, I think there's there's gaps everywhere, but those gaps prevent people from moving through the system. Um, Mm -hmm. I worked with a survivor a few weeks ago, and I feel like her story is helpful in kind of illustrating how how things get stopped up. But I worked with a survivor um, a few weeks ago who was at a shelter in the Cook County suburbs, and she had fled domestic violence, and they were trying to place her in a rapid rehousing program. 
but it was impossible to do that um, because she had an eviction on her record from 2016. And so, you know, she wasn't able to move on and I was able to help her with that. So that it has a happy ending, but you know, that shelter bed that's taken up and, you know, it just, when people can't move along this housing continuum, um, it's just really, you know, it, it's an issue at every place on the continuum. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And I know that Barrington is considering something that people refer to as a crime-free ordinance. What is What are crime-free ordinances, and are, are they good things or bad things? Another great question, um, and I'm happy that you asked it. Um, so Barrington just recently... Um, uh, Barrington residents voted to grant home rule status to their village. And so that gives them more flexibility about what types of ordinances that they can enact there. So one of the things that they're considering is a crime-free ordinance. Um, crime-free ordinances um, are programs. They're typically housed in a crime-free uh, program within the municipality um, where they penalize landlords and tenants um, for calling the police or for calling for emergency services. Each ordinance looks really different. Barrington is still in the process of forming what it will look like if they do implement one. Um, And we recently did advocacy around this um, just because crime-free ordinances are really problematic for survivors of gender-based violence and also people with disabilities. As you can imagine, survivors of gender-based violence face numerous barriers when they're fleeing and recovering from violence. We don't want to create additional barriers or make them afraid to call the police if they want to do that or if they need emergency assistance. What we found um, from these ordinances is that they prevent people from calling when they need help just because they're afraid they're going to lose their housing. Um, Because often under the ordinance, there will be like a three strike rule um, where if you call too many times and all of a sudden um, your your landlord may be pushed into evicting you through the ordinance um, as a requirement of the ordinance. Um, I once worked with a survivor at this point, probably about 10 months ago, but She was also in the Cook County suburbs, and their municipality had a crime-free ordinance. And um, she, the ordinance was triggered after her ex-boyfriend came to her unit, um, attacked her, prevented her from calling 911, and so he was arrested. But that arrest itself triggered the ordinance, and so um, at that point, um, police would not respond to her unit. So when he was released after the arrest, I I know the story unfortunately does get worse. Um, when he was released after the arrest, he came back. Um, she had barricaded herself in the unit uh, with her child, trying to stay safe, calling the police. She called me at that point saying, I cannot get anyone to respond to my home. We were ultimately able to get them to pick him up. Um, and But it's just like an example of how these things play out, like what happens when these crime-free programs essentially push people out of their homes or make people afraid to call law enforcement if they want to do so. Um, it's just really difficult. It sounds like their program's designed, that, but. yeah, to, it's sort of like not in my backyard. You know, you have problems. You've called the police a few times. We're going to make sure you get evicted, so you have to go live somewhere somewhere else. Not in my backyard are you going to be able to live because uh, you're a problem. That's exactly right. And I will say that some municipalities um, do have carve-outs for survivors of domestic and sexual violence or for people with disabilities. However, those carve-outs don't always work just because it's really difficult to identify domestic violence in those split instances, right? 
Um, and also, um, it just makes survivors still targeted for eviction under these types of programs. Um, just because, you know, people have different views of what domestic violence is. So I can tell you from my work with survivors, often domestic violence looks like from the outside, uh, noise disturbances, um, property damage, um, you know, criminal activity. But it doesn't always result in like a domestic battery charge. So when mm-hmm. those other charges um, are, are what's uh, charged at the property, then um, those residents will be pushed out, even though it is domestic violence. Um, so car routes don't work. And so we're hoping that Barrington doesn't um, enact an ordinance, but obviously we'll continue to do advocacy on that issue. Wow. Um, if you had a magic wand and you could make one thing magically happen, whether it's a change in policy, a change in law, a change in practice, what would that be? Hmm. Now that I have a magic wand on a Friday, I'm going to have to really... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. That's, yeah, you, you, oh, need, no. you need to go into the weekend and put your feet up. The kind of work, the kind of work you do is hard. No, I would say if I had a magic wand, um, what I would want is people to call the Illinois Domestic Violence Hotline, and if they need a space to go, we have a space for them. That and, and that doesn't sound like it's a hard ask, but it's been something we have not been able to meet, and so that that is what I want. And I think that could look different depending on how these programs happen, but probably what it would look like in practice is having permanent housing solutions for survivors of gender-based violence more kind of short-term rapid rehousing solutions and more shelter beds. So it's, it's more ask than just that one, but that would be my main. <laughs> call, we're able to help them. Well, I, I appreciate your talking to us about the really important work that you do. Uh, Jacqueline uh, Zarek Koriath, director of housing advocacy at the network. Thank you for telling our audience about this important stuff, uh, particularly to Keep us on the alert to look for these crime-free ordinances and to understand how they can really hurt people. Thank you, Jacqueline. Thank you for having me. We are going to take a break. We are going to talk about, uh, we're going to talk with Alderman Matt O'Shea when we come back after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. There is going to be a pancake breakfast. Everybody loves pancakes. This one is for a good cause. 19th Ward Alderman Matt O'Shea's annual Get Behind the Vest Pancake Breakfast. It is going to be this Sunday, February 19th, 8 a.m. to noon at St. John Fisher, John Fisher's Cane Hall. That's, um, 10200 South Washtenaw Avenue in Chicago. Get Behind the Vest helps raise money to buy vests for police officers. Matt, how nice for you to join us and how nice for you to do this. Thanks for having me, Joan. How you been? I've been great. I know that last time I had David Hochberg on, he was telling me that I don't. Is it is it your Get Behind the Vest breakfast that he's involved with? Yes, we work together now. 
uh, and what a, what a tremendous help he has been. Yeah, because he said, he said, yeah, I'm going to go on with you today, but you need to get me back on before we do this breakfast, this get behind the vest. And I was like, okay, so you'll have to tell him that even though I didn't get him on the radio today, you were on the radio today to talk about this. I think it's uh, surprising to a lot of people that we need to raise money for vests. Why is that? So, Joan, Chicago police officers are given a vest when they graduate from the academy. But from then on, it is up to them to replace those vests. So about nine years ago, the Chicago Police Memorial Foundation uh, and Executive Director Phil Klein decided that we were going to kick off the Get Behind the Vest campaign. And in working on their advisory board, I had asked Phil, I'd like to organize an event in my neighborhood to raise money, and away we went. Uh, Sunday will be our ninth annual, and to date we have raised more than a half million dollars towards purchasing life-saving bulletproof vests to protect our police officers. How much do these vests cost? Uh, somewhere uh, from about six hundred dollars on the low end, all the way up to you know several thousand dollars for vests for you know protecting against higher caliber artillery. And the money you raise, how do you distribute it? I mean, do you go out and buy vests and hand them out, or do you give out vouchers? How does it work? No, this is um, this is an initiative. We work with the Chicago Police Memorial Foundation. The foundation itself purchases the vests. Uh, this is just a fundraiser that I organize to help support that effort. Um, you know, you're really a good person to do this, and you're really a good person to put up with David Hochberg. I love him. I love him. But man, oh, man, sometimes sometimes I think he's going to have a heart attack when he joins me on the radio. Is he a little calmer at the pancake breakfast? No, there's nothing calm about David Hochberg. But <laughs> what I will say is uh, he is a generous soul, and the fact that he has always been so supportive of the men and women who serve in law enforcement, and in this case, the Chicago Police Department. Uh, we're lucky that he has their back, and uh, it's a pleasure to work with him because uh, he's a force to be reckoned with on this topic. Yeah, he really he really is. So, uh, Matt, uh, do you make the pancakes? Well, we're very lucky. Uh, the Harrigan family uh, here in my community, who was owned and operated, original pancake house, uh, Beverly location since 1965, they donate all of the food product, and we feed more than a thousand people who come through the door. Wow! Uh, um, I'll do some run around cleaning up and, and trying to clear tables because uh, you know there's a crowd that's there the all four hours, but um, I try to stay out of the kitchen. I just get in people's way. <laughs> Do you have a really attractive apron that you wear for this, Matt? I will put an apron on just to look like I know what I'm doing. Ah, I see. To fool the crowd. Oh, yes, I'm Alderman Matt O'Shea. I'm working hard here at the Get Behind the Vest Pancake Breakfast. How much does it cost to get in, Matt? Well, that's what's the great thing about this, Joan. It's $5 for all-you-can-eat delicious pancakes, $25 for a family. Uh, Every penny we raise goes to the Chicago Police Memorial Foundation to purchase a bulletproof vest to protect our police officers. So uh, I encourage anybody, come by. You know, we'll be at St. John Fisher, as you said, Sunday morning from 8 a.m. till noon. It's such a wonderful cause. 
And, you know, the other great thing about this, Joan, we have so many police officers and their families there. It's just an opportunity to thank a police officer for all they do uh, day in and day out to keep us safe. You said uh, in, you, in the years you've been doing this, you usually get a crowd of about a thousand people. Where do they all come from, Matt? Well, the majority of them come from my community, you know, the 19th Ward, Beverly, Morgan Park, and Mount Greenwood neighborhoods. We are home to um, thousands of, of, you know, active police officers and many retired. Uh, we come out in force to support um, the men and women of the Chicago Police Department. But we get people from all over the metro area. When they hear about this, they just want to do their part to, to support this effort. And I want to point out to the audience that even if even if an officer uh, never has any trauma to their vest, you know, they're never shot or there's no other trauma. These vests are only good for what is it about five years, Matt? And then they're supposed to be replaced. Five years. Yeah, that's that's the shelf life of a bulletproof vest. You know, the fibers wear down, uh, whether that be perspiration from the officers um, you know, the storage of the, the vest, just the normal wear and tear. Uh, it's important that if you replace every five years, and, and what the Chicago Police Memorial Foundation found out nine years ago was that many officers 10, 20 years on the job were wearing the original vest that they were given. So, um, you know, as technology continues to develop, it's important that we get the best equipment to protect our officers, and that's what this effort's all about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is the Get Behind the Vest Pancake Breakfast. It is this Sunday um, from 8 a.m. till noon, St. John Fisher's Cane Hall at uh, 10200 South Washtenaw Avenue in Chicago. $5 for a person, $25 for a family. Um, it, you know, what? even if you come in with a family of five, Matt... <laughs> 25 bucks, you can't beat that. You can't beat that at all. And uh, just to reassure you, David Hochberg is not making the pancakes. He might be serving the pancakes. He will not be making the pancakes. They are actually made professionally by the original pancake house, Beverly. So you can trust the food, and it's bound to be good. Absolutely. And, Joan, any of your uh, listeners that might not be able to make it on Sunday, but want to help out, uh, they can go to uh, www.cpdvest.com and make uh, make a donation towards this effort. Say that again. Say the web address. Uh, cpdvest.com. CPDVest.com. If you can't make it, if that neighborhood just isn't convenient for you uh, this coming Sunday morning, you can make a donation to this really wonderful cause. Alderman Matt O'Shea, the lovely David Hochberg. I'm so glad both of you guys do this. And thanks, Matt, for uh, sharing the news about it with our listeners. Joan, thanks so much for always supporting the Chicago Police Department. You have a good night. You too. Well, that's going to do it for me tonight. Uh, Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is next. Uh, I will not be here tomorrow at 2, but Edwin Eisendrath will be here at 1 to bring you uh, the three-hour show, The Big Picture. Please join him 
for that. I will see you again on Monday. It is President's Day. You may have it off, but I will be here working hard behind the microphone. (laughs) (laughs) or at least as hard as I usually work. That's going to do it for me. Have a great weekend. Find something that brings you joy this weekend. And I will see you Monday. Have a great weekend. Good night.